Do you love Uncover from CBC Podcasts? What's your favorite season? Which one did you skip? What do you want to hear more of? Help us make Uncover even better by taking our listener survey now. Visit cbc.ca slash uncover survey to make sure your voice is heard. This is a CBC Podcast. The following episode contains difficult subject matter, including references to sexual assault. Please take care. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. This is Crime Story. Every week, a new crime with the storyteller who knows it best. We couldn't sugarcoat this story. It was a story of murder, of exploitation of a schoolgirl, of failure of a criminal justice system, of another era, and that was the teacher's pet. In 1982, Lynn Dawson disappeared from her home in Sydney, Australia. According to her husband, Chris, the loving mother of two just up and left. But people close to Lynn didn't buy it. Many suspected that Chris had something to do with it. But for 40 years, the case went nowhere. No one found Lynn, and Chris was free to live his life. That all changed when journalist Headley Thomas dropped his first episode of the podcast, The Teacher's Pet. Well, it was a podcast that captured Australia's attention, The Teacher's Pet. The crime series centering on the disappearance of Sydney nurse Lynette Dawson has been downloaded by millions that delved into Lynette Dawson's disappearance in 1982. The Teacher's Pet was a massive hit in Australia and pressured police to reopen the case. For some, Thomas's reporting went too far and risked sabotaging an unsolved murder. That podcast he did was as dangerous as it was useful in getting justice for Lynette Dawson's family. But others were just happy to see the case re-examined. It prompted new witnesses to come forward who've now testified in Chris Dawson's murder trial. Whichever way you look at it, Thomas and the teacher's pet blew the case wide open. Welcome to Crime Story, Headley Thomas, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kathleen. I really appreciate your intro, and uh, I'm happy to be here. So I guess you can't say that your work doesn't make a difference, can you? Oh, look, it's made a profound difference, and not just in Lynn's case, but in, I think, many, many other cases. I'll never know for sure how many and to what extent, but Lynn's story has empowered so many people to take a stand and uh, really get out of a relationship or uh, report a suspicious event to police. It's never too late. Well, let's start at the beginning. Who was Lynn Dawson? Lynn was a nurse who had been a very loving mother of two little girls, and they were age four and two in January 1982 when Lynn disappeared. Lynn was 33 years old when she suddenly vanished. She worked part-time as the nurse at a childcare centre near her house in a beautiful part of Sydney called Bayview. And everybody tells me you could not have come across a more dedicated, doting, loving mother. And tell me about her husband. Who did people think Chris Dawson was? Chris Dawson was 
a very charismatic, handsome, fit, first-grade footballer. And he played in Sydney for the Newtown Jets, and he was a powerful footballer. He was known as Cranky Chris because he could sometimes blow up on the field and would occasionally use his elbows or fists. And he had an exceptionally close twin, Paul. He was known as Passive Paul. Uh, he was just a little more measured, less likely to unravel with anger. And these two brothers were incredibly close. They both became school teachers. They both played rugby together. Everything they did was a mirror reflection of the other. And it was, for many people, a bit creepy. But uh, Chris was popular, and he was popular at the local high school on the Northern Beaches where he taught. He was a PE teacher, which is physical education in Australia. And the students thought he was pretty cool because he'd not only been a well-known footballer, he was also an occasional male model. And what did Chris say happened to his wife? Chris claimed that on Friday, January 8, 1982, he and his wife went to marriage counselling because they were having some difficulties. The counselling had gone well. Uh, in fact, Lynn's friends had seen her walking out of counselling and into the childcare centre with Chris, holding hands. So they were surprised because they knew the relationship was fraught. Then, according to Chris, on the Friday night, after they'd had a glass of wine and been enjoying each other's company again, Lynn was suddenly a little distressed because she was ruminating on problems that Chris claimed she had in her own family and so on. And he said that the next morning she got up early, put on a load of washing, prepared some lunches for him and the girls because he had a part-time job as a lifesaver. And he said that he drove her to a bus stop because Lyndon Drive so that she could take a bus. She wanted to return some clothing. And then he was expecting that she would join him at the pool and he says that's the last time he saw her and that um, the last time he actually spoke to her was a couple of weeks later but that at the swimming pool she had called him that he took a phone call in the kiosk of the pool and he came back from the kiosk and he said to Lynn's mother and a friend that was Lynn and she said that she was on the central coast with friends and she needed some time away to think things over, meaning in the relationship. And he said he had a couple of other calls over the ensuing weeks, uh, and then he never heard from her again. And this didn't sit well with her mother, her friends. Why not? What, what made them suspicious of this story? Well, it didn't sit well. But her mother and Lynn's family, that is Lynn's two brothers and sister, were not initially, and not for several years, suspicious of Chris. And that's partly because he was a trusted member of their family. They believed him when he said what had happened. They knew that Lynn was in some stress because of the relationship difficulties. They also knew, though, that what Chris was describing was so out of character for Lynn because 
she was a very responsible person. She had a reputation for being utterly reliable, uh, very loving. Over the previous 10 days, she'd talked to her mother or seen her mother on every day. And uh, she was organizing this surprise birthday party. She had so much to look forward to with her girls. And everybody knew that she absolutely adored those little girls. So why would she suddenly take off while on a purported shopping trip carrying just a shopping bag and uh, wearing a pair of pink shorts? But because of Chris's standing in Lynn's family, they accepted what he told them. But on the other hand, Lynn's friends, particularly those at the childcare centre, were immediately and deeply suspicious about what had happened. And I think that, unfortunately, there was just a disconnect between those friends and Lynn's family, including Lynn's brother, who was a serving police officer at the time, such that those suspicions weren't conveyed. And you mentioned that Lynn's friends knew the relationship was fraught because there was something going on with the babysitter that he wasn't hiding, was he? Well, he was not hiding it from everyone because it was impossible to disguise. Chris Dawson was utterly infatuated with a schoolgirl, a girl who was in his physical education class when she was in her second last year of high school. In fact, he ensured that she would be moved into his class and that he would teach it because he had seen her around the school and really liked what he saw. I mean, this schoolgirl, just how old was she? She was 16 years old when he started having sex with her. He was grooming her for months beforehand. She was vulnerable. She had difficulties in her own life because her stepfather was a drunk and violent. She lived in a, a relatively small home with her mother and him and her sisters. And it was very difficult to get away in this place from the anger and the alcohol and the tensions. So when Chris Dawson offered her opportunities to babysit his daughters in his beautiful, new, and very spacious home with his wife, who was so caring and gentle and prepared to help this child, of course, she ran towards it. What happened when she moved into the house? So the grooming and, and their um, sexual connection, and I'm loath to call it a relationship anymore, uh, Certainly, she hates it being described as a relationship. Uh, she calls it abuse. But it leads to them becoming very close and continuing to see each other at every opportunity. And while she's in the house, Chris is taking every opportunity behind his wife's back to have sex with her in the spare room, in the house, sometimes after mixing his wife a spirit drink, which would make her go to sleep, sometimes in her chair. And you have to question whether there was something other than bourbon or gin in her alcoholic drinks. And eventually he tries to push Lynn out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Chris wants to sell the house. He wants Lynn and he to separate. He has been unable to hide any longer the connection he has with the girl. Lynn has actually seen them 
in bed together. Her friends are telling her, Lynn, he's fucking the babysitter. And that's as bluntly as it was put to her. And she's come to the realisation that this has been going on, but she's still utterly devoted to Chris. And so she tolerates what's gone on and forgives him after throwing the girl out. Then we get to the 23rd of December, 1981, and that's the date on which Chris and the babysitter pack up the car and plan to drive north to Queensland, where I live, to effectively start a new life, to uh, run away from his job as the teacher, from the home, from everything. But it's on that trip that uh, the babysitter becomes just so distressed and homesick and she breaks down in hives. She, she's very anxious and, and she says, I can't go through with this. This relationship is too hard. And they turn the car around near the border with the Queensland drive all the way back to Sydney, about 10 hours. And they spend Christmas night in the school gymnasium, sleeping on mattresses. And she goes and stays with her mom. And then she's staying with her sister who's moved out. And then in early January, she goes to a place called Southwest Rocks with her friends from high school. They're having like a schoolies break at the beach. And Chris becomes incredibly concerned that she's going to uh, hook up with one of her school friends, someone her own age. And so on the Saturday, the 9th of January, which is the day... Lynn's mother discovers that Lynn hasn't turned up. Chris was making preparations to drive to Southwest Rocks in the evening or the following day. And he drives up there. Lynn's suddenly disappeared. And Chris fetches the babysitter, brings her back to the family home. And within um, three days maximum of Lynn having disappeared, the babysitter is now living in the family house. She's living in Lynn's bedroom. She's using all of Lynn's belongings and is, from that point on, the replacement wife and stepmother. So just so I understand, on the very same day that his wife goes missing... Chris decides to bring his 16-year-old girlfriend, the family babysitter, to live in his house. So how does the neighborhood, Lynn's friends and family, how do they deal with what they're seeing? That's a really good question. There's different reactions depending on which part of the family or friendship group they're coming from. So Lynn's mother and Lynn's siblings, they were not immediately aware that the babysitter had moved in. But one of Lynn's good friends, who was her next-door neighbour, a woman called Julie Andrew, she knew, and she was a very powerful witness in the ultimate murder trial, and she was also an incredibly compelling interviewee for me because she describes her near certainty that... Chris had 
killed Lynn and replaced Lynn with the babysitter. And she has struggled for years with the fact that she didn't raise the, an alarm about this at a very early stage. She waited, she says, for police to come and talk to her. And it seems extraordinary now that such a phenomenon would occur, that an intelligent woman who believes her friend has been murdered by her husband and replaced by a babysitter doesn't immediately go to the police, wait 16 years. And Julie has herself talked about this very candidly against her own interests and just described how different things were for women in 1982. I think she was also a bit scared and intimidated by Chris. But she says she waited for the police to knock on her door. And at that time, in that era, you trusted police, you trusted your doctor, you trusted judges. If they didn't come to her, then did they know something that she didn't know? And so she just waited and nothing happened. Why didn't the police knock on her door? What were the police, what did they know? What were they doing when this woman just up and disappears and a babysitter moves in? I have pondered this question so many times. Here's what we know for certain. Chris Dawson and his brother, Paul, were well-known on the Northern Beaches for their footballing talent. They were also playing for a team called the Bellrose Eagles after they had retired from first-grade football with the Newtown Jets. The Bellrose Eagles president was a copper, a senior detective on the Northern Beaches. His name was Brian Smacker Gardner. And Brian was regarded as a no-nonsense cop. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that he suspected foul play and covered it up. But it's unquestionably the case that there was a very lame police investigation. And I wonder whether Chris, through the influence he had over police, persuaded them to turn a blind eye, persuaded them that his wife was a bit unstable, might have gone off with a cult. Don't look at this too deeply. You know me, I'm Chris. And they backed off. It's either that or something worse, like corruption. At what point do you enter the story and what do you know? I mean, this is so much. It's incredible when you look back on all of it and you try to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and do the timeline. It's just such an incredible case and story. But my connection to it starts in 2001. About that time, I was a reporter for the Courier-Mail newspaper. And I'd gone into the library of the newspaper to catch up on what the Southern papers had been reporting. And so I was going through some of the bound files and the Sydney Daily Telegraph had some really interesting stories coming out of an inquest that had just wrapped up. And it was an inquest into the presumed death of Lynette Joy Dawson in 1982. So I'm reading these files in 2001 at a time when you know I was a very proud um, new dad myself. My son was a toddler. My wife was heavily pregnant with our second child, our daughter. And reading about how these little girls had been raised with this lie that their mother had just decided to leave them 
and didn't love them enough to get in touch again, but was no doubt living somewhere in Australia and started a new life. And it just was the cruelest thing that I could imagine a child being raised with. And uh, then I discovered that Chris Dawson had been a school teacher at my old high school at Southport in Queensland. I went there through the 80s and I left at the end of year 12, 1984. And Chris gets a job teaching at the start of 1985 at my old high school. So I've missed him by just weeks. And I'm fascinated by that connection as well. And I have friends who repeated or friends who were a year below who knew Mr. Dawson. And so I decided to go to Sydney and uh, try to research this case that had been unfolding in the inquest. And I rang Damien Loon, who was the, the police officer who had assembled the brief of evidence for the inquest before I left Brisbane to fly to Sydney asked him about it and he was very open and said, look, I've got permission to show you the brief of evidence. You come to the DY police station, you can sit and uh, read it and take notes. So I did that and I wrote this article um, as a result of hours and hours in that police station just taking notes and I just thought this is the most extraordinary case I have come across. I must commit to something more than you know, just this weekend article. But the inquiry did rule that her death was problematic and that the police should look at the husband, but nothing ever came of that. Am I correct? Absolutely right. So there were, in fact, two inquests, two separate coroners ran proceedings that led to recommendations that Chris Dawson be considered seriously by the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions as a murder suspect and prosecuted for the suspected murder of his wife, Lynn. And yeah, that's a big step for a coroner to take. They don't do that willy-nilly. And both times, the Office of the DPP rejected those recommendations and refused to prosecute, said that there was insufficient evidence to be reasonably confident of a success and therefore they declined. And as I got into the podcast investigation, I formed a very clear view that the DPP had fundamentally misunderstood key parts of the evidence always in Chris's favour. So we'll jump ahead to the release of Teacher's Pet. And from what I gather, the response was pretty intense. Yeah, I had no idea what might happen. But it, it began very encouragingly in that people started contacting me immediately. People who knew Lynn, who had held on to information for years, or who had taken information to the police and they felt ignored by police. And... At the end of every episode, I, I issued a call saying, hey, look, if anyone has any information, can contact me confidentially. And I gave an email address and people did that. I would be ripping parts of the completed episodes out and replacing it with this new material. And so it ended up that I got way behind in terms of the head start that I thought I had on my listenership. I thought I would always be about a month ahead of the listenership because I had five episodes 
that were done and we were releasing them weekly. I quickly lost that buffer and got to a point where we were producing 12, 14,000 word episodes within a few days each week to try to maintain the the flow and the momentum of the series. And the demands became completely ludicrous, but we were running on adrenaline and there's so much material coming in, we couldn't stop and listenership kept growing. And the biggest risk was that we would screw up and make a terrible error, a factual error that would undermine everything. But we had a sense that if we could pull this off, we could possibly solve this case and make a difference after what was then 36 years. Can you give me one or two of the biggest uh, pieces of either new evidence or uh, sort of examples of some things that you heard about that really shifted the case for everyone? Yeah, absolutely. There was a serving magistrate called Jeff Linden, and he had played football with Chris. He knew Lynn. He'd even acted as Chris's solicitor when Chris needed to get a divorce from his missing wife, missing murdered wife, but of course that wasn't known to Jeff. And so before Jeff became a magistrate, he was talking to a guy on the Northern Beaches who had moved into Chris's old house. And this fellow, he was talking to Jeff about the former owner, Chris. He kept coming back to the house, walking up into the the grounds of the house, and he was seeing that there was landscaping going on. And he made a point of asking, where are you digging every time? Where are you digging on the property? And Jeff, he told me that that just sent chills through him. And he explained to the new owner, look, don't you know, the woman who used to live there has been missing all this time. And this guy, he went white and he just said, well, he keeps coming back and he wants to walk over the ground. So that was a fascinating piece of information early in the piece. And can I just say, because there became suspicion that probably if Chris killed her and her body is somewhere in the backyard. Well, that's right. The police were suspicious that Lynn's body could have been buried on the grounds. And in the year 2000, they actually did a dig just before the first inquest of the grounds. And they dug around the swimming pool. And in the dirt around the swimming pool, found a woman's cardigan that had multiple cut marks that the police forensics officers said looked like it had been repeatedly stabbed with a knife. So there was always suspicion about the grounds, but the police never thoroughly searched the whole block. It was the large acreage block. So that was the first piece of significant information. The other very powerful piece of evidence was the fact that I knew from interviewing one of Lynn's very good friends at the childcare centre, a woman called Sue Strath, that in 1985, she had made a formal complaint to an office of government known as the Ombudsman. And the Ombudsman is there to take in citizens' complaints and investigate whether there's been failure by bureaucrats or different elements of the government in performing their functions. Sue complained that the police hadn't properly investigated her friend's disappearance. And and she said that, you know, nothing happened. So I knew that um, government departments, a bit like some journalists, could be hoarders. And this file could have been kept, possibly stored somewhere. It could be in archives. Who knew? And it was bugging me. And I just 
started thinking about the possibilities. And I went to the New South Wales State Archives and began making inquiries there. And they found Sue Strath's original complaint file from 1985. And in that file, there were a number of internal police documents because the police in trying to cover their asses have written back to the Ombudsman what they did and have set out their procedures and so on. And amazingly, despite the detail of Sue's complaint, which is in the file, her handwritten complaint, the police don't make any actual fresh inquiry on her complaint. They spend all their time trying to cover up what they didn't do the first time in 1982. But incredibly, there's another document in this folder. It's a handwritten statement. It's signed by Crystals. It's dated August 1982. And in the statement, he just lies about the situation in his marriage. He omits any mention of the babysitter. He omits the fact, for example, that he had left with her to start a new life, but he does talk about how he went away around Christmas time on his own, he says, and that shortly thereafter, Lynn said that she wanted to do the same thing, go away on her own. So these lies and omissions in this handwritten statement hadn't been seen before, and the statement had been lost because so many files were lost. And when I found that, it was a real eureka moment. You know, it seemed to me that it was evidence of a consciousness of his own guilt, that he lied to avoid addressing his guilt over the probable murder of his wife. I also spoke to a witness, a former babysitter in the house, who saw Chris being violent towards his wife. This is a different babysitter, not the one he ended up grooming. That's right. This is a babysitter who came before the one he ended up marrying. And she believed that at that time, she was being groomed too. She was in a vulnerable situation, but she got out of the house. But before she parted company with Chris, she saw him pushing Lynn very roughly into a doorway. She also saw him whip her with a, a tea towel across her bare back when he had a dirty glass handed to him. And in her view, if something was just a little bit out of place, because he had a very ordered life, his wardrobe, everything that was on display needed to be perfectly lined up. If something was a little bit out of whack, he would lose it, and, and that would fire his temper. So I listened to every second of your podcast, frustrated and angry and shocked about everything you were telling us about the lack of any kind of movement. Um, but eventually, I get a podcast in my feed that tells me he's been arrested, finally. How much do you feel like the podcast made that happen? Yeah, look, I think the podcast made a very significant difference in the court of public opinion. There was rage in Australia in many listeners because they were hearing a podcast that was describing accurately an utter failure of the criminal justice system over many years. And I was speculating with the benefit of documents and letters that the DPP had written that the DPP had actually misunderstood the case. 
and had wrongly believed that Lynn was seen at a time when the police were telling the DPP she must have already been dead. These sightings, so-called sightings, were, I believe, completely bogus. One of them was uh, reported by Chris, and he literally tells the homicide detectives that his um, footballing mate Ray's wife Sue saw Lynn outside a fruit barn on the central coast, and then Lynn drove away. Now, Lynn didn't drive. No one took a statement from Sue, but that was enough for the early investigation to be terminated, even though the police never went to Sue to say, hey, is this true? Your friend Chris says that you saw someone you thought could have been Lynn outside this fruit barn before she drove away. They never checked it out. And yet that purported sighting, which was complete crock of crap, in my opinion, became part of the, the DPP's narrative that Lynn must have been seen. Lynn was possibly seen. And the listenership, I think, you know, smelled a rat. We know that in this day and age, a mother of two young children who suddenly disappears while her husband is completely infatuated with a teenager who he then marries and no one ever sees the wife again and she makes no claim on any assets and has never used a credit card or a bank card or a passport or a hospital card, never voted ever since. So as all of this is coming out, I think people were applying enormous pressure on the office of the DPP and on the police to do something. Did the DPP, the prosecutor, respond to your podcast? Did they admit to any wrongdoing? Now, the DPP is like a vault in terms of explaining itself. It doesn't need to be publicly accountable. It would never say the rage of the community, um, new material and evidence from the podcast, all of that combined, along with our realization that we screwed up earlier to cause us to change our minds. I'll never say that. And I got a very strong sense that I was the annoyance for both the DPP and the police. You know, they don't like investigative journalists intruding on what they what they regard as their patch, even with an unsolved 36-year-old case. But it took a, a very robust, hard-hitting, front-footed and risky journalistic investigation to either make it or break it. And that's where we ended up. In fact, it nearly broke it. Didn't the defense try to use the podcast to get the case thrown out? Well, it's possible that it nearly broke it. The defense, as a result of the podcast, said that Chris Dawson, having been arrested by that stage, could never get a fair trial. That everybody who heard the podcast, because it was so detailed and had relied on witnesses who had been witnesses in the inquest some 16, 17 years earlier, those witnesses had been contaminated, the defense said, by me, and their evidence couldn't be relied upon, and no jurors could possibly be found who could uh, put out of their minds the podcast and all of the associated publicity because it had been so widely heard and downloaded, and there's been so many thousands of stories spinning off. How did the judge see it? Of course, the DPP argued that um, while the podcast was certainly pervasive and it dealt with a huge amount of evidence that many of the witnesses I talked to, they'd already given their evidence. 
They'd already given written statements and they had given testimony in the inquest. So all it would take would, would be a comparison of what they told me and what they previously said to work out whether or not they had changed their story. And then it would be open to the defence in a trial to question them on any inconsistencies. There was no evidence, in fact, that there was any contamination of witnesses. So the judge eventually threw out the multiple arguments of the defence, but it became very clear to me that the judge really didn't like the podcast. I think I probably got a one-half-star review from the main judge <laughs> in that case. What was that like, though? Were you nervous? I mean, it isn't usually journalists sitting there having to defend their work. Yeah, Kathleen, it was like the podcast became a showcase of shame, you know, for the system, which had failed this woman for so long. But then it's like, shoot the messenger. And I had to hand over thousands of emails, WhatsApp messages, Facebook messages, all of my audio files, my interviews, so much material, all under subpoena. I decided that, you know, we just had to endure this. I knew some very senior lawyers and former judges who said that, you know, it's theoretically possible for a murder proceeding to be permanently stayed because of pretrial publicity, but highly, highly unusual. It would take something very exceptional that it's a bit of a try on, it's futile. You're just going to have to endure this. Um, and so endure it. We did. Uh, I had three days, or just under three days, in the witness box being cross-examined by one of the best criminal defense lawyers in Australia. And uh, there's um, some very um, curt exchanges between us. And um, I just decided that um, you know, you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. And I was not going to be defensive or acknowledge or admit to anything that, that uh, I thought was being unfairly put to me. I was proud of what the podcast had achieved. I was righteously still indignant about the failure of the criminal justice system, a system that now wanted to attempt to put the journalism on trial. So there are all these different things going on and you know, it was um it was a tense time. How do you solve a crime in reverse? when you believe that someone was murdered, but have no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we gonna do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the end, there was a verdict. Can you tell me what that was? Chris Dawson was found guilty of Lynn's murder at the end of August 2022. The judge, a very senior judge, Justice Ian Harrison, said that he was in no doubt that Chris Dawson had murdered Lynn, who was utterly faultless, unsuspecting, and that... Um, he did it most likely on the evening of Friday, January the 8th, 1982. What was it like to hear that guilty pronouncement? It must have been something. We were waiting 
for five hours of the judge's oral reasons before we got to that final sentence, guilty. And soon after that, two officers in uniform moved very briskly across the courtroom and um, held Chris and put the handcuffs on him. And this man, age 74, was then bundled out of the courtroom, limping like a wounded animal. Um, he had football injuries that had troubled him for years and dodgy knees. And uh, he was um, taken down to the cells and outside the court afterwards. It was just the most incredible crowd and helicopters were the media over the, the court building and huge contingent of press and TV and other media. And I stood with um, Lynn's family and my wife, Ruth, and um, looking back uh, and now, I still get chills thinking about about it and the risks that were taken by all of us to sort of produce the story because we were effectively calling Chris Dawson through the podcast a murderer. Well, listening, I mean, one of the things that really struck me was that it felt like as a listener that you were saying that he was a murderer. Yeah, I accept that. With lots of evidence and lots of reason to say it, but it absolutely felt to me. And that was something that set it apart for me was that it was clear to you that he was guilty of killing Lynn. Yeah. And it's a very big step for a journalist to take. It really is. Yeah. And I wouldn't have done that without the evidence that had come before my podcast and all of the lies that we had uncovered. You know, it was unavoidable. I didn't believe that when I was doing the podcast, I couldn't ethically pretend with such a long form of the story that um, I could give him the benefit of the doubt. So it would have taken a very different style of podcast to try to frame it that way, to try and make it almost like a 50-50, to try and come up with scenarios where Lynn had gone to live in a cult or moved overseas with a false passport and changed the way she looked or something. You know, How would you come up with such far-fetched things in good faith that none of it actually was true to the evidence? So I thought, well, we either crash or crash through and he's got remedies. You know, he could sue us for defamation. And we took the view that if he did launch civil proceedings against us for defamation for libel, we would defend those and we would put him in the witness box for the first time because he had avoided both the inquests, 2001 and 2003. And we would attempt to prove in a civil proceeding that he had murdered his wife. So we were up for that fight when we thought it's now or never. It's 36 years since this much-loved woman who had kind of fallen through the cracks, needed to be addressed. We couldn't sugarcoat this story. It was a story of murder, of exploitation of a schoolgirl, of failure of a criminal justice system, of another era, but it had sort of carried through many years and caused so much pain to so many people. And you know, that's what we ended up with. That was the teacher's pet. Well, thanks, Hadley. I am so appreciative of the time you gave me, and I really am appreciative of the work that you do. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Kathleen. I really, really appreciate you um, taking me through that. I, I never get tired talking about it. Sometimes I get a bit sad thinking about parts of it, but, but um, and it's such an important case, and uh, I genuinely 
I enjoy these conversations because they remind me of things that happen, sometimes funny, sometimes distressing, but all part of the, the overall picture. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you. Headley Thomas's new book, The Teacher's Pet, is out now. You've been listening to Crime Story from CBC Podcasts. We drop a new episode every Monday. You can get our next episode a week early on CBC Podcasts' YouTube channel or by subscribing to the CBC Podcasts True Crime channel on Apple Podcasts. In addition to early access, subscribers to our True Crime channel also listen ad-free. Crime Story is written and hosted by me. Our producers are Alexis Green and Sarah Clayton. Sound design by Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Jeff Turner. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Our YouTube producer is John Lee. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is CBC Podcast Senior Manager and Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.